We live in a world that looks like evil is winning. A world that looks like chaos will triumph. And David lived in that same world, even though he lived 3,000 years before us. He lived in a world that looked like evil oftentimes was winning. Verse 12 of Psalm 37 says, The wicked plots against the righteous and gnashes his teeth at him. And verse 14 says, The wicked draw the sword and bend their bows to bring down the poor and needy, to slay those whose way is upright. David lived in a world, and we live in a world, where it seems like a lot of the time being wicked or being ruthless or being evil or being willing to do whatever it takes, the consequences to other people be damned, that's how you get yourself ahead in this world. That's how you make yourself great. Verse 35, he says, I have seen a wicked, ruthless man spreading himself like a green laurel tree, like a tree in its native soil, like a a tree that's really flourishing. That's what the wicked man looks like. And yet David wants us also to know that that is just the surface. Those things that we see where it looks like the wicked prosper, where it looks like evil is the way to advance, where it looks like ruthlessness is the way forward, that's all passing. That's all but a moment. The wicked will not last. Verse 36 says, One passed on his way, and behold, he, that spreading green laurel tree, that great prosperous wicked man, he was no more. Though I sought him, he could not be found. The, the wicked, they prosper for a time, but then they vanish like that overnight. They're gone. And David looks at that reality and he says to his original readers and he says to us in verse two or verse one, rather, fret not yourself because of evildoers. Do not be envious of wrongdoers for verse two, they will soon fade like the grass and wither like the green herb. And so as we looked at Psalm 37 last week, that was our drumbeat over and over. Don't worry about the wicked. Now, don't pretend they're not there. Like David sees it. He is as perplexed and bothered by it as anybody. And yet he says, if we are seeing things in the long term, in the eternal perspective, the way that God sees the world, evil does not last. And so don't spend your time worrying and fretting and getting bent out of shape and tied into knots over those things which are passing. The wicked will not last. And the other side of what he talks about in Psalm 37 that we just barely touched on last week is the opposite. It's God's promises for the righteous. And this will be our takeaway point. If God does have all these promises for the righteous, then we should pursue righteousness. We should trust in the Lord, verse 3, and do good, dwell in the land, and befriend faithfulness. But before we can look at all of the promises that God gives here for the righteous, we need to know who are the righteous. We spent, I don't know, probably a page of my manuscript last week talking about the fact that none of us are righteous, right? By nature, we are what the Apostle Paul calls children of wrath, like the rest of mankind, Ephesians 2. We are born in sin and guilt, unable to keep God's law. We are the ones who... All of us deserve the punishment that will come upon the wicked. That's who we are by nature, is, are, are those who deserve God's wrath and God's judgment. 
We need to receive righteousness. Righteousness can never be achieved by us because we've already racked up too much guilt. So if we're going to be righteous, it has to be given to us as a gift. And this in, sometimes this gets put in such a way as to say that that only starts to happen in the New Testament. In the Old Testament, it was all about law. In the New Testament, it's about grace. But actually, in the very first book of the Bible, Genesis chapter 15, God is speaking to a man who at that point, <clears throat> his name was still Abram. And God is making promises to him. He's promising that he's going to have a son. He's promising that he's going to have descendants. Chapter 15, verse 5. And he brought him outside and said, look toward heaven and number the stars if you are able to number him, number them. Then he said to him, so shall your offspring be. And he, that is Abram, believed the Lord, and he counted it to him as righteousness. Abraham believed the promises of God, and God counted that belief in his promises as righteousness. And that same theme is picked up, that that text is quoted by the Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 4 and verse 3. Verse 3 of Romans 4 says, what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. Now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. And to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. So what Paul's saying is he's looking back at Abraham and he's saying, okay, for us now, this side of the cross, We believe that God justifies us, God forgives us, God makes us righteous, not by any good thing that we can do, not by any list of good works that we can achieve, but by receiving, by faith, trusting in the promises of God. First and foremost, this promise, that he will forgive all of your sins if you trust in Jesus. That's how you become righteous in God's sight, is not by doing something, but by believing in what Jesus has done already for you. That objective, imputed righteousness, though, that's the fancy theological term, imputation, it's counted to you. It changes us. If if you've received it, it does something to you. If you've received Christ by faith, he pours out his Holy Spirit into your life and changes you such that you then do act differently. The the things that you do won't be earning God's favor. You already have it because of Jesus. But it will change the way that you live. I think it's, maybe this is probably not like the most important point to run down right now. I'll say it anyway. It looks different in different people. The The way... The way that this, like your your background before you get to Christ changes what that growing righteousness looks like right away. Sometimes, and I'm guilty of this too, like I look at the Old Testament and I read the story of Abraham and I go, that guy was a joke, <laughs> right? He was, he's t- twice, twice lies about his wife being his wife so that he doesn't get killed. Uh, he He's not like a super great guy in a lot of ways. And yet... His life was still distinct. 
from those around him because he was worshiping Yahweh. Though maybe from our lens, he does some things really wrong. He's still different than the world around him because he's pursuing God. David, the same way. Uh, sometimes I was kind of hard on David as we're going through First and Second Samuel because David makes a lot of mistakes. David sins pretty grievously. And yet at the same time, his life was still markedly different from, say, Joab or his sons, Absalom or Amnon, who rejected God and they run totally in the opposite direction. David, though he is sinning, he still turns back to God and it changes his life. He, he lives differently than the world around him. And I, I think that's helpful for us as we look at the lives of others. Like, what I'm going to say is that grace changes us. Great, saving faith, we're saved by faith alone, but the faith that saves is never alone. It, it's, never, it's never going to not have works come along with it. But those things are going to look differently based on where the person is starting from. You know, so so we should have patience with others as they're growing in their faith because they're starting at a different point than we are. So, all that to say, the how do we know if if we are among the righteous? Well, first of all, do you trust and delight in God? Verse three, trust in the Lord and do good. Verse four, delight yourself in the Lord. Verse five, commit your way to the Lord. Trust in Him. If you are trusting in God. And then growing in righteousness, you are one of the ones who these promises will apply to. Have you trusted in Christ and are you growing in grace? If so, these promises are for you. So what are the promises for the righteous? Well, first, we see that the Lord will defend the cause of the righteous. Verses 5 and 6 say, Commit your way to the Lord, trust in him, and he will act. He will bring forth your righteousness as the light and your justice as the noonday. One of the things that drives our fear of those who are wicked is the fear that they will prevail. Our, Our fear of the bad things happening in the world is the fear that it's going to win and we will be crushed if we want to stand with God, stand against what's evil. Well, What is the point of righteous living if it ends up being a waste of time, if I end up getting crushed for it? What what if it costs me to stand with Christ in a particular situation? Well, David says, trust in the Lord, verse 5, trust in him, and he will act. And this is the same kind of confidence that the apostles had in Acts chapter 5. This is one of my favorite stories in the book of Acts. It just now occurs to me like how much force that the disciples' words here are going to have because Ananias and Sapphira have just been killed for disobeying God. Verse 27, Peter and John and the other apostles, they'd been commanded not to preach about Jesus. They, They were told by the religious leaders, keep your mouths shut about this. And so they brought them, they set them before the council. They've been arrested and they're drugged before the council. And the high priest questioned them saying, We strictly charged you not to teach in this name. Yet here you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching, and you intend to bring this man's blood upon us, because Peter's preaching that, hey, you guys killed the Messiah. You killed Jesus. And the religious leaders, the chief priests and the Sadducees, they were 
kind of in on that, not kind of, they were very much in on that conspiracy. They were behind it. But Peter, verse 29, and the apostles answered, we must obey God rather than men. The God of our fathers raised Jesus, whom you killed by hanging him on a tree. God exalted him at his right hand as Lord and Savior to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And we are witnessing to these signs. So it is the Holy Spirit whom God has given to those who obey him. And in the end, they end up asking, like, should we obey God or you? Should we obey God or men? Well, God raised Jesus from the dead. And the, the, the Sadducees, the chief priests, they're probably sitting there thinking, and God just killed Ananias and Sapphira. <laughs> and here's the one who has life and death. Should we obey him or should we obey you guys sitting here? Sure, you've got religious power. You can throw us. You've got political power. You can throw us in jail. You had Jesus killed. I'm sure you can work some shenanigans with the Romans and get us killed too. But should we obey God or you? That's the question. We worry so often about whether we have are going to have in the future the freedom to do this or that. And it's right to lobby for good laws. That's part of loving your neighbor as yourself. When you have the ability to <clears throat> exercise influence upon political leaders who make laws, like lobbying for good ones, just ones, that's a good thing to do. But good laws don't create freedoms. God creates freedoms. Good laws recognize freedoms. We always have the freedom to worship God, obey God, and follow God. No man, no government has the ability to take that away. No one can hinder that. But we have to walk into those situations with trust that if things go poorly for me in this world, God will vindicate me. God will vindicate the righteous. Verse 17 says, the arms of the wicked shall be broken, but the Lord upholds the righteous. Verse 23, the steps of a man are established by the Lord when he delights in his way. Though he fall, he shall not be cast headlong. The Lord upholds his hand. It's like a picture of like somebody's falling on the ice and God doesn't let him smack his head on the ground and get a concussion. <laughs> he lets him slip, reminds him like you're not the one who's got the ability to keep yourself on your feet, but God will catch you before you fall down all the way. Verses 32 and 33 say, the wicked watches for the righteous and seeks to put him to death. But the Lord will not abandon him to his power or let him be condemned when brought to trial. <clears throat> Over in the, the book of Luke chapter 12, Luke chapter 12, beginning in verse 11, Jesus says, And when they bring you before the synagogues and the rulers and the authorities, do not be anxious about how you should defend yourself or what you should say. For the Holy Spirit will teach you in that very hour what you ought to say. I was <clears throat> reading for a class this week, and so I was reading a lot of church history, like around the first four ecumenical councils. And the time period, one, one of the chapters in one of the books I was reading was the time period before the Council of Nicaea. So it was covering a lot of the, the first and second century when there was so much persecution going on. And there were so many believers who had the opportunity 
in those moments, you know, they're about to get taken to the Coliseum or they're about to get arrested and they have the opportunity, you can recant and this all goes away. And they say, no, I'm not going to recant. And they, some of them, I mean, some of them were like preachers and maybe more eloquent, but so many of them were just ordinary Christians. And they got taken before rulers and had to give an account. And they didn't have like a six-part speech prepped. God gave them the words when they needed them. And, and we can bring that into our life, even in in America, at least right now, we're probably not going to get drugged before any courts anytime too soon, right? <clears throat> but you're still going to have conversations with people all the time who don't believe what you believe. And if the topics turn to what God's word has to say or, or what God thinks about something or what your opinion is on a particular testy subject, it can get tense, right? And you can sit there trying to think through ahead of time, how am I going to say these things in such a way that I come out okay? Or you can think, Lord, would you please just help me to speak graciously and honestly about Jesus and, and speak in such a way as to benefit the person that I'm talking to, whether they agree with me or not. Don't worry about it ahead of time. Pray, and God will give you the words that you need. God will defend your cause. You don't have to prove yourself right. You don't have to prove yourself righteous or wonderful. Just act in a way that is righteous and honoring to God, and he will defend your cause. Second, the Lord will provide your needs. If you are among his people, if you are among the righteous, those justified by faith in Christ, God will provide your needs. Some of my favorite verses are verses 25 and 26, which say, I have been young and now I'm old. I haven't got to the second part of that yet, but <clears throat> I, I love the verse. I've been young and now I'm old, yet I've not seen the righteous forsaken or his children begging for bread. He is ever lending generously and his children become a blessing. If you've been a Christian for a long time, you should ask, has God ever forsaken you? So often we get into a, a particular circumstance where it feels like we might get forsaken and we start to worry and we get nervous. But then just ask yourself the question, has God ever let me down? I'm chastened by this verse because when I am in a tight time or I see one coming, I want to start thinking through in my own cleverness, which is sometimes lacking, how I'm going to figure it out, how I'm going to make the situation turn out the way I want it to, how I can scheme for my own provision. But God is the one who provides for all of our needs. The book of James talks about how foolish and sinful it is to say, well, you know what? In a year or so, I'm going to go spend a year there, and I'm going to trade, and I'm going to earn a profit, and I'm going to do this and that with that profit. And he says, no, you should say, if the Lord wills, we'll do this or that. It's, it's not wrong to plan. The book of Proverbs is full of exhortation about planning and being wise. But if you do not acknowledge that God is the one who is over all of those plans, the one who's in charge of whether they come to fruition, the one who gives you the ability to do anything that you know how to do, if you're not acknowledging God in that, you're, you're wasting your time because God will smash your silly little plans sooner or later. Psalm 37 verses 18 and 19 say, the Lord knows the days of the blameless, and their heritage will remain forever. They are not put to shame in evil times. In the days of famine, 
they have abundance. It was interesting. We were reading these verses last night, uh, and Lorelai had a really good objection. But what about all those Christians who really are poor and really do go hungry sometimes? They do have to beg for bread. To which I I think there's there's two main answers. Uh, Before I get to the two main answers, kind of a broader perspective thing here is the the Bible is wisdom literature, right? So we don't just take this Bible verse, cut it out, and paste it onto our life and think it's automatically going to just having that one verse is enough. (laughs) It's set in the context of all of Scripture, and we meditate on it. We're supposed to think hard about, okay, how does this... What does it mean? How does it apply? And turn it over and over in our minds. And and two things I think can help us as we think about this statement by David. I've been young and now I am old and I have not seen the righteous forsaken or his children begging for bread. He is ever lending generously and his children become a blessing. Number one, just practically speaking, following the Lord generally does lead people out of poverty. You, you see in countries where missionaries go in and the gospel starts to take root in the lives of very poor places, things start to change. Education comes. Hospitals come. The, the education as we know it is a Christian thing. <laughs> it's advanced with Christianity throughout the world. Same with medicine. Those are things that have followed on the coattails of missionaries. And so as the gospel takes root, root in a place. And as it takes root in people's hearts, they start to live and make decisions in a wise way, in a God-honoring way, in a way that accords with the way that God made the world. And generally, over time, that does mean poverty starts to disappear. Not disappear entirely, but it changes its shape. It looks different. But if you're that Christian that hasn't happened for yet. Or you're the one who, here, famine. Like sometimes things happen that are outside of anybody's personal decisions, outside of their control. Circumstances happen to you that put you in a bad spot. If you, uh, if you know Christ, your perspective is totally different. Uh, verse four is probably the most famous verse in this Psalm. Delight yourself in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. And again, if, this, if we're just cutting, copy and paste, Verses onto our life, what people want to do is put that on a coffee cup and think, well, if I delight in God, he's going to give me my whole wish list. But the fact of the matter is, if we delight in God, he changes the desires of our heart. He brings our hearts into conformity with his. And so you can have a verse like Hebrews 10 and verse 34, I believe it is, where it talks about those who joyfully accepted the plundering of their property because they knew that they had a better city where there was an abiding possession. They were okay with because they had lined themselves up with Christians who had gone to jail and they went and they served them and they ministered to them. Well, then the authorities came and took their stuff too and they were okay with it. They joyfully accepted the plundering of their property because they knew they were lined up with Jesus and that was better to them. That was better to them than having all of their stuff. You have ultimately everything you need. Verse 16 here in Psalm 37 says, Better, better 
not okay, not good enough, not you'll get by. Better is the little that the righteous has than the abundance of many wicked. Delighting yourself in the Lord will change your perspective on what you actually need. I was talking to Scott's dad on Tuesday, and he was telling me about one of the missionaries or pastors, and I think it was in the Dominican, that he had talked to where the guy had lost his arm in a grain auger, I think. And he was saying, well, that must have been too, so bad. And he's like, no, it's great. I wouldn't have come to know the Lord if I hadn't have lost my arm. And, you know, I, I look at that situation and I go, your arm, your arm's kind of a big deal. But Jesus said it's better to go to heaven with one arm than to live a really long time here with two and be cast into hell. That guy was literally just applying what Jesus had said. The psalm, this psalm is, is constantly wanting to lift our eyes to an eternal perspective, to lift our eyes off of the immediate things that we see and experience in this world. Justice will come for those who have trusted in God. In the words of Henry Longfellow, the wrong shall fail and the right prevail. And in the meantime... Even if we don't quite experience the fullness of that yet, if we have Jesus, we can have joy. John 10.10 10 says that the thief came to steal and kill and destroy, but I came that they might have life and have it abundantly. We can have an abundant, joyful life in Christ, no matter what our circumstances. And third promise here, and this might seem paradoxical coming after the first two. The Lord provides a land. That's the third promise here. In fact, it's probably the most repeated promise in this psalm, is that the righteous will inherit a land. Lest we, lest we think that these promises are just like pie in the sky, ethereal, floating around on a cloud kind of promises, the most frequent promise in this psalm is that the righteous will inherit the land. Land is really important in the Bible. I mean, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth right? The, the land. It's the same word in, in Hebrew. <clears throat> it, throughout the, the first chapter of Genesis, God is adding things to the land. And at the end of chapter one, he tells the man and the woman to fill the earth, fill the land and subdue it. Uh, we just looked at Abram earlier and he told Abram that he was going to give him a land, Canaan, the land of promise. Joshua chapter 23 and verse 14 says that God fulfilled that promise to all of God's people, to the people of Israel, that God had given them the land that they had been promised. And those land promises here, as, as David's speaking in the context of Israel in 1000 BC, their mind would go to the, the land promises and blessings of, of Joshua, well, of, of Deuteronomy and then of Abraham before that. But then in Joshua 23, verse 14, it says, this is at the end of Joshua's life as he's speaking to the leaders of Israel. So, so Moses had brought the people all the way up to the edge of the promised land, and then Joshua had led them into the promised land after Moses had died. And now Joshua is an old man, and he says, I'm about to go the way of all the earth. I'm about to die. And you know in your hearts and your souls, all of you, that not one Word of the has failed of all the good things that the Lord your God promised concerning you. All have come to pass for you. Not one of them has failed. 
But just as all the good things that the Lord your God promised concerning you have been fulfilled for you, so the Lord will bring upon you all the evil things until he has destroyed you from off this good land that the Lord your God has given you. If you transgress the covenant of the Lord your God, which he commanded you, and go and serve other gods and bow down to them, then the anger of the Lord will be kindled against you and you shall perish quickly from off the good land that he has given to you. And so as David's writing this psalm, his readers are going to be thinking about this, that God has promised a lasting place in the land of Israel, in the land of Canaan, for those who follow God. And for those who don't follow God, he's going to kick them out of the land. And so as we read, God's going to obliterate the wicked from off the the land, but the righteous are going to dwell in it forever. They're thinking, okay, these are the Deuteronomy, I can't even say the word, the blessings from Deuteronomy, <clears throat> Deuteronomic, I think is how you would say it, blessings, the blessings of that, that God had given through Moses and then repeated through Joshua. And this is, again, so frequent here. I just want to read through it because it's it was jarring for me as I read through the psalm over and over again. I'm used to hearing about spiritual blessings, but here, this is, this is tangible. Verse 3, dwell in the land... And befriend faithfulness. Verse 9, those who wait for the Lord shall inherit the land. Verse 11, the meek shall inherit the land. Verse 22, the blessed by the Lord shall inherit the land. Verse 29, the righteous shall inherit the land and dwell upon it forever. Verse 34, he will exalt you to inherit the land. So, that would have been normal sounding to the Jews. That would, this is not out of their wheelhouse to hear about something like this. But is this just a promise for them? Is this just a promise for the Old Testament? Jesus didn't think so. If anything, the promise that Jesus makes to us is even more expansive than what was given to the Old Covenant people of God. In Matthew chapter 5 and verse 5, Jesus quotes Psalm 37. 11. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. The meek, those who walk humbly before God, those who look to God as their provider. He says, not only will they inherit this little piece of land, they get the whole thing, the whole earth. This is totally counter to how our world says you acquire something. You acquire, how would you acquire the earth? Well, you try to become Alexander the Great or Julius Caesar or Hitler or Putin or somebody with like these expansive desires. I mean, if you're a leader of Russia, you've already got like a huge chunk of earth, but he's going to keep on pushing west. And like, that's how the world says, acquire, you become ruthless, you pursue dominating others. And Jesus says, blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. We think that the aggressive, ruthless, power-hungry person is the one who advances in this world, but that, again, is a temporary illusion. We've looked a number of times in the last few months at the end of Revelation, and, and there we see that the church, the, 
the bride of Christ, the, the heavenly Jerusalem, sits at the center of the new earth in Revelation 21 and 22. And we will one, one day inherit the world. If we are in Christ, the world belongs to him, Matthew 28, 18 through 20. All authority in heaven and on earth is given to him. We inherit it with him. We, we will one day have a land way greater than what Adam and Eve had been given dominion over. But what do we do with this right now? Okay, so that's, again, that's out in the future. We have the new heaven, the new earth. That's great. But what hope does that give us? What hope does that promise give us now? And is there application for today? And, and we need to think about that because there's still a command in verse 3 where he says, dwell in the land. That's a, that's a command. That's not a promise. Dwell in the land and befriend faithfulness. What's that look like? First of all, I just want to look at the first part of verse 3 there. He says, trust the Lord and do good. Uh, the way I would flesh that out is I'd say we, we need to live like we have a better land. That passage from Hebrews chapter 10, verses 32 to 34. But recall the former days when after you were enlightened, you endured a hard struggle with sufferings, sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction, sometimes being partners with those so treated. For you had compassion on those in prison, and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property, since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. If we know that God will vindicate us in the face of our foes and provide for us all of our needs, then we can live lives of generosity, which again is what this psalm says the righteous do. Verse 21 of Psalm 37 says that the wicked borrows and does not pay back, but the righteous is generous and gives. Verse 26, he, the righteous, is lending generously. So if we aren't desperately trying to get ourselves ahead, we can look at our material possessions in this world, in this land, and spread them out to bless others. And this includes, I think, if we think about the book of Proverbs prudently, saving and having something for our children. But it also largely just means, look at my stuff, and it's not my stuff. It's God's stuff. Who needs God's stuff right now? Get it to them. This isn't this isn't how we normally think about our things, right? We think about how can I accumulate for me? And yet God says, if you're going to dwell in the land faithfully, you've got to trust me with the things that I've given to you. Another part of what we don't normally see is generosity, but here in verse 26, he is ever lending generously and his children become a blessing. I don't think those are disconnected. We, we often think about Psalm 127, which says that children are a blessing from the Lord. Like there's an objective sense in which life is a gift and being entrusted with children, that's a gift from God. But it's also a responsibility. Like uh, the job of Christian parents is to raise your children such that they become a blessing to everyone around them. His children ever become a blessing. We do good with wise speech. Verse 30 says that the mouth of the righteous utters wisdom. His tongue speaks justice. And this is only possible because the law of the Lord is on his heart. Verse 31. 
So we, are you consuming and meditating on God's word in such a way that what pours forth from your speech is gracious, seasoned with salt, that it might give grace to those who hear, as Paul says in Colossians 4, 6. And this goes back to what we said earlier. Don't use your words in such a way as to justify yourself or to try to make yourself look good. Don't use your words to prop yourself up. Use your words to help others, to give out God's wisdom, and to point others to Jesus. So often we get tripped up thinking about what should I say to best reflect on me. Don't worry about reflecting on you. Worry about how it reflects Christ, how it will benefit those who hear. The rest of verse 3 says, dwell in the land and befriend faithfulness. Well, how can we dwell in a future land? I think part of that answer is given to us by Jesus in Matthew chapter 10. Matthew chapter 10, verse 28. I wrote down the wrong book there. It's Mark chapter 10, not Matthew. <laughs> Sorry. Mark 10, verse 28. Peter began to say to him, See, we have left everything and followed you. Jesus said, Truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions and in the age to come eternal life. But many who are first will be last, and the last will be first. Jesus says that you can leave anything that you need to leave to follow him, and he'll provide that in abundance more. He'll provide all the family that you need. He'll provide the home, the lands that you need. He'll provide it all. And how does he do that in this life? How does he do that in this age? He does it through his people. He does it through the church. He has given us to one another. One of the most important ways to faithfully pursue righteousness is to commit yourself long-term to a local church. When we cut ourselves off from the church, either by removing ourselves entirely or or just deciding, you know what, I... I can't. I don't really want to just like hang out in one place. I want to just hop around and see what's good for me this at this time. Boy, that that will not serve you well long term. You you've got to find believers to commit to, so that number one, you can use the gifts that God has given you to serve them. But then, as, as the psalm was talking about, so that you can receive God's grace through them. It's not that that won't happen if you're not committed to a church because sometimes the church still comes and finds you out. If you're in Christ, God is too good to leave you out there on your own. But the way to put yourself in line for these blessings is to be long-term committed to the body. The church is his bride. The, the church is where Jesus has chosen to work in this age. We are the representatives of that future land right here in this world. We are the outpost of the kingdom. And and so by committing to one another, we are showing the world what that land will be like, what living faithfully in that land can look like even now.
So, in conclusion, verses 3 and 4, I just want to read again. Trust in the Lord and do good. Dwell in the land and befriend faithfulness. Delight yourself in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. And if we delight ourselves in him, he will conform our desires to be like his. And those transformed desires are desires that he is glad to fulfill. Last two verses says, The salvation of the righteous is from the Lord. He is their stronghold in time of trouble. The Lord helps them and delivers them. He delivers them from the wicked and saves them because they take refuge in him. Take refuge in Christ and pursue him. Befriend faithfulness. Let's pray. Father God, would you help us? It's just like an idea that I still haven't thought enough about. What's it like to make faithfulness my friend? Would you make each of us a friend of faithfulness? Would you make us a church that befriends faithfulness? We ask in Jesus' name, for our sake. Amen. If you want to stand, we'll sing a couple more songs.